This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of religion and God and culture. And today, uh, our topic is life in the context of Islam. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director of the Howard G. Hendricks uh, Center for Christian Leadership and for Cultural Engagement, and I'm Executive Director of Cultural Engagement there. And we're doing something a little unusual today because of the topic. Um, We are interviewing someone who will not be on camera. This is to protect identity, and so we're also using a pseudonym as well. We'll confess to that at the start. And so my guest is Miriam, who uh, has come uh, to the States from the Middle East. Good morning. Good morning. And uh, we will be uh, talking about life in the context of Islam and and about Islam in general. Uh, Miriam came to faith here in uh, in the states, but grew up in the context of Islam. So she can tell us about life from within the faith, as well as looking at life. Uh, from the outside now that she has uh, come to the Lord. So we're going to walk through her story, uh, but you will not see her. You will only hear her voice, and the voice that you hear is actually not her voice, but a voice that has been uh, uh, digitally rearranged, if I can say it that way, um, uh, again, because we're concerned to protect identity here. So Miriam, thank you for coming in and being willing to in- interact with us and tell us about life in the context of Islam. <laughs> Well, growing up in the Middle East, it's very hard to um, separate culture from the religion. There were a lot of things, for example, that um, we dealt with as far as the culture was concerned, like arranged marriage. Um, According to Islam, my dad did not have the right to force me to marry. However, in the Middle Eastern culture, um, my dad had the right to choose a husband for me and to force me to get married. So there is a a, a big, huge misconception, I think, here in the the United States between the culture and the religion. Uh, Naturally, with the religion, I grew up thinking that I had a lot of rights in Islam. I had the right to choose my husband. I had the right to education. I had the right um, to, uh, you know, to, to be a, um, a school teacher or to be a professional and, um, you know, to be a wife. And so there is a difference between the Arab culture and, uh, the religion. And I, I think a lot of what happens, um, as we look at the Middle East, we think that what is culture is actually religion, and it's not. There's a big difference between the two. Okay, and that's a very interesting way to lead off. So I'm going to let I'm going to let you develop that a little bit more. Okay. Um, uh, what aspects would you say are a reflection of Arab culture, and which aspects would you say are a reflection of of Islam? Well, you know, certainly in the Islamic religion, the Sharia law requires that a woman wears head covering. 
and a woman uh, prays five times a day, just like anybody else. Um, there are certain part of the religion, for example, Muhammad said that women uh, lack religion and lack knowledge. And the reason why they lack religion and lack knowledge is because they think emotionally. And so they don't, they don't, um, they don't think cognitively uh, because they put their emotions in it. And so he said that, and then he said that they lack religion because of the fact that women cannot pray during their menstrual cycle, during uh, the 40 days after having a child. And so um, he says that they lack religion in that respect. So there is that, you know, as far as religion. And he did say that most of the women uh, or most of the, the dwellers of hell are going to be women because they gossip and they are not very appreciative. At least that was his explanation, his uh, explanation of why women are most of the most of the hell dwellers are going to be women. Um, so in that regard, that's that is religion. But as far as not being able to uh, go to school, for for example, when the Taliban came and took over in Afghanistan, they would not allow women to become teachers. They they basically shut the doors of schools and they let women stop being um, doctors because that was just their culture. It had nothing to do with religion. Interesting. So, so we've got a distinction between well, we've got a distinction that really does impact, and I think most uh, Americans are aware of this. Does impact the role of women uh, in both in Arab culture and in Islam. And the two, would it be fair to say that the two play off of each other to a certain extent? That there's a certain position or role that women have in the context of Islam that has fed the way the culture uh, also treats women. Absolutely, and I think there was a. An aspect of the culture that um, Islam came and kind of sanctified a little bit because um, it, according to the Arab culture, pre-Islamic times, they had the right to bury their daughters alive because of the honor and shame system. You know, we talk about honor killing and we hear about honor killing um, in the Middle East, but that has nothing to do with religion. It has absolutely nothing to do with religion. Now, according to the Islamic religion, they have the right to kill me as a woman, but they have the right to kill any man as well for converting mm -hmm. uh, to become an apostate. If you leave the religion, then you have the right to be killed, and it doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. However, in the Middle Eastern culture, they have a right to kill their daughters even today for dishonoring the family, for shaming the family. So that has a lot to do with the culture and not to do with the religion. Okay, well, you've brought up a few things here that let me let me help people with. Um, Sharia law, explain what that is. The Sharia law is really very, if I can simplify it to the absolute max, the Sharia law says that you are to follow first what the Quran says. And if it's not written in the Quran, then you go to the Hadith, which are the sayings of Muhammad and the life of Muhammad. And if that's not written in there, if there's nothing, a, a particular topic that's written in there, then you go to the leaders, the Muslim leaders, and they decide based on principle. So 
You know, for example, the issue of a woman driving. First, you go to the Quran and you decide, is it written in the Quran whether a woman can drive or not? Okay. Well, I imagine there are no cars in the Quran. There so. are no okay, cars. Okay. And then you, then you go to what Muhammad had said. Did Muhammad talk about, you know, a woman not driving a car or not being able to drive a car? Well, he didn't because during his That's time right. there were no driving cars. So then you go back to the, the Muslim leaders and then they decide based on the principles of what is found in the Quran, is it permissible for a woman to drive a car or not? And there are some who've said yes, and there are some who have said no. Hmm. Oh, so, so I guess you can sort of drive. You can sort of drive. <laughs> Depends on what country you live in. Okay, and then and then uh, l- let's talk a little bit about about growing up in a, in the context of Islam. What uh, uh, talk about the week? Okay, um, for example, the holy day is a different day of the week. Sure. Than uh, than either for Judaism or Christianity. So could you explain that for people? Sure. Um, you know, for Muslims, it's considered Friday. For Jews, it's considered Saturday, and for for, um, for Christians is considered Sunday. Um, and they believe that Friday is a holy day because that's, you know, that is the day they believe that God has set aside for Muslims to, to worship. And so now when you go to the mosque on, on a, on a holy day, on a Friday, um, is this something that only men do, or do women go? And how does that how does that work? Well, according to Sharia law, according to Islam, women are not obligated to go, but men are obli- obligated to go. Obviously, Islam is a very works based religion, mm-hmm. and so the more you do, the more points you have. For men, it's obligatory for them to go to the mosque and, and to pray in the mosque actually even five times a day. It's it's very obligatory for them. For a woman, uh, Muhammad decided that it wasn't obligatory for a woman to go just because she had kids and young kids and um, but she she could go if she wanted to go. And there are even uh, sayings of Muhammad in history where Um, he would have the women, you know, standing in the back and and the men are in front. And the reason why he did that was because, you know, when a woman is bending down, he doesn't want a man behind her looking at her as she's bending down. So that's why women are to stand in the back and men are are to stand in the front. Hmm. Um, And so when he had heard, when he would hear a child crying and he knew that a woman was in the back of the ranks, he would finish up the prayer very quickly because he knew the woman had to attend to her child. So now I've I've been uh, in Turkey uh, during time during during the week, and I actually actually remember having a meal right next to a mosque and watching the men in particular go in and wash before they go into the service. Now that's something we don't do in in Christianity. So explain what that's all about. Sure. It- you know, it is required for Muslims to cleanse themselves before they go in and pray. And not only is it obligatory for men, but it's also obligatory for women. Um, a man has to completely wash up. Um, if he has had relations with his wife the night before, he has to completely bathe himself. So there's a whole lot of cleansing. You have to go clean, basically, before God to pray. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? 
This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. I see. Um, Now, um, why is it, this is a cultural question as well as a religion question, you know, a lot of the um, unrest that we've seen during the Arab Spring takes place on Fridays, at least some of the major events and marches and that kind of thing. How does that work? If if it's a holy day and I'm supposed to be obligated to be at the mosque, then how is it that Friday ends up being the big protest day in Arab countries? It's probably the time where imams gather men the most. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, imams are talking about political issues. And so when they talk about political issues and, and they go into the mosque and these men hear about how we should protest... They're going to arouse people to do that, and that's that's perfect timing for the imams to get people going. So I think it's really led by a lot of imams. Okay, and and again, explain what an imam, who who an imam is. Mm-hmm. An imam is a Muslim leader. It's kind of like a pastor okay. that preaches on Sundays. Well, they have an imam that speaks to them and and provides the what they call the message, the khutbah on Fridays. Now, what is the relationship of an imam to the larger culture? What role do they play within the culture? Because that appears to be somewhat different than what we normally see here as well in terms of the role of way a pastor might function in relationship to a culture here? I think it's really different. It depends on which country you're living in again. I think in Saudi Arabia, they have much more control over there um, than they would in other countries. But, you know, they certainly do have the power to motivate people and to encourage them to do certain things. And so a lot of times what these imams are talking about are political issues. And, and oftentimes they're talking about, well, is it permissible to do a certain thing that's not in the Quran, that's not in the Hadith? You know, people go and ask for advice and say, well, you know, my wife did this, what should I do? Or my husband did this, what should I do? And so they're, they're really, they act as advisors oftentimes of what people should and shouldn't do, but, but they, they are also motivators. Okay, now what kinds of stereotypes uh, might Americans have about Muslims that uh, they ought not to have? That they're all terrorists. Okay. Because they're not all terrorists. And I often tell people that if you, you know, if you look at Muslims as people who are here in America because of the same reasons why you came to America to have a better life, to provide a better education for your kids, I I think it'll change everything. And I often say to my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that God didn't pick us because we're something special. He picked us because he's something special. Mm -hmm. And so that levels the playing field Mm -hmm. Um, because we're not better than uh, Arabs. We're not better than Muslims. We're not better just because we live here in the United States. We are privileged and we are blessed by the Lord, but apart from the grace of God, I don't know why we're here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, 
Uh, so so Muslims are not terrorists. I tell you, when, our time in Turkey when we were there, um, obviously uh, predominantly uh, Islamic country, almost no Christian presence to speak of at all. And we were in, we were impressed by the hospitality that we received, and the courtesy of people. Even when we were trying to get directions and didn't know the language, the people would make the effort to try and help us. And so, um, talk a little bit about about the kinds of Muslims one might meet, uh, both here in the states and also perhaps if you were found yourself in an Arab uh, country. You know, that's very interesting that you say that, Dr. Bach, because um, I had heard a missionary woman that lived in a Middle Eastern country with her husband, and she stood up and her testimony was that she felt like these Arab women were Jesus to her far more than a lot of her neighbors when she had lived in the United States. And because they were kind to her, they were very helpful to her. Whenever she needed to go to the hospital, they came and they took her kids in. And so that's what you'll find with Arabs. Just because, for example, if you see a woman in the grocery store who's wearing a head covering, I promise you she doesn't have a bomb under that head covering. She Mm -hmm. just doesn't. Mm And um, she may look different, and and it may look intimidating to us, but she's a woman that has the same needs as any other woman Mm -hmm. that is in the grocery store. She's hungry. She's trying to feed her kids. She wants a better life for her kids. She wants a better life for her family. And so you'll find a lot of hospitality. I um, oftentimes work with a lot of refugees that come to the United States. And I encourage women to go and and minister to these women. And oftentimes, these women from from the church will come to me and say, you know, it's amazing because I feel like they're ministering to me. Hmm. And so we just we have to open the door. God, God's heart, God's vision. The end goal is that every tribe, every tongue, every nation will bow their knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's going to include a whole lot of Arabs and a whole lot of Muslims and a whole lot of uh, tribes from Middle Eastern countries. All right. Let's talk about a little bit about your your life growing up in in the context of uh, of Islam. What would you what would you say about that? How would you describe um, the way you were raised and what would be involved in your life and what was central to your life as you were growing up. Things that might, and a way to help with the question might be to th- talk about things in particular that might be like growing up here and things that would be very different. Well, you know, I think I grew up, um, I'm, it's a broad yeah, question. Right, it is. So um, I think with... The similarities as far as, you know, growing up here and and growing up in America versus growing up in the Middle East is, you know, I I wanted to have an education. I wanted to be able to work. I wanted to be able to do those things. Obviously, the culture played a huge part in it where my dad wanted to make sure I was married at a young age and I had my own home and had my own family. And and that was a big concern within the, the Middle Eastern culture. A big part of Islam and a big part of the Arab culture is the whole idea of marriage and the whole idea of raising a family and, and being a mother. That was that was very central in the Middle East and um, growing up as a Muslim. And obviously, it's all about works. I mean, I, I, I think if I can if I can say 
you know, a, a big, huge comparison between Islam and Christianity as far as the religions are concerned is I grew up with no hope. I had no hope, no eternal hope. Um, but now I have hope. I have hope in the fact that Christ died on the cross for me. He made a way for me. He came down to me rather than me try to climb to him to reach him. Hmm. And that is a huge difference, I think. And and so the good works is based on my fear. Fear plays a big, huge role in Islam, whereas the Bible clearly says that there is no fear in love, that love casts out all fear. And so I grew up fearful, fearful of God, fearful of how God may punish me, fearful of how God may feel about me. Whereas in uh, Christianity, I, I, I have peace, the peace that passes all understanding. I have hope, which did not exist in Islam. Now, you, you talked about the kind of hopes that you had in terms of an education and that kind of thing. Um, let's talk about one other element of, of Arab culture that I think is important that most people, I think, do not realize about many countries in the Middle East. may not be true across the board. but uh, And again, I'm, I'm drawing on my own experience in the context of having spent some time in Turkey. Um, there is There are very religious-oriented Muslims, if I can say it that way, but there also is a strong uh, secular strand of uh, of culture related it's islamic but it's it's more secular and we see these tensions in several middle eastern countries i'm thinking of egypt i'm thinking of turkey etc sure um talk a little bit about that because uh on the one hand the goals of someone who comes out of a more secularized form of islam mm-hmm. and the way they approach life is very different from their uh, Muslim neighbors, if I can say it that way, who are more, and I don't even know what the right word to use, more traditionally religious or more intensely religious about their faith. Sure. Uh, explain that those issues and tensions a little bit. Well, you know, obviously, w- one of the things that I've I've heard some pastors say is that, you know, we don't love Islam, but we love Muslims. We love the people. We don't love the religion. We love the people. Um, in the Middle East. They don't separate the two. Mm-hmm. Whether you're secular or whether you're devout, being a Muslim is who you are. So when we start talking negatively about Islam, they're automatically offended by it personally. And obviously, we've seen that mm-hmm. in the media because um, you've just offended who they are. And even though some of these people who are, who have gone out and rioted about certain things are probably not even very religious people. And with Islam, the, the hard thing about Islam is it's very hard to tell who's very devout and who's, who's really very secular because, um, I, and I've seen this happen with my own family, you can go for several years where you're wearing, you know, as a woman, you're wearing the head covering and you're following Islam and you're doing all that. But one of the hard things about being a human being is you can't keep up. Mm-hmm. You just can't keep up. And so then they leave it for a while and then they come back to it and then they become devout. And so it's kind of an ebb and flow relationship with God and with Islam is sometimes you're, you're very, very devout and other times you're really not devout at all. You're, you're not even praying at all. And so it's very hard to, you know, to separate because there's a whole lot of gray areas there, you know, as far as the Muslim culture is concerned and as far as 
religiosity is concerned mm-hmm. is most of the time you just can't keep up with it. But would it be fair to say that there is a, a tension, at least in some context, between the people who are more secular and and might even be, and I'll even say it this way, it may even be more influenced by by the larger culture of the world in some ways, a little more sure. materialistic and sure. a little more, you know, they have educational goals and that kind of thing. And the, and the more, again, traditional and stricter form of Islam, which, which tends to separate itself very much from those kinds of goals. I mean, one of the things that struck me being in Istanbul, for example, was uh, there, are, there are many parts of Istanbul where you feel like I could be in Europe. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, I, I'm. I don't feel I'm in the Middle East at all. Yeah, um, and except for the the uh, the minarets uh, uh, sounding off for the time of prayer and that kind of thing, that's the only way you know you're in the Middle East. So, and I and I think that impacts the understanding of of who uh, Arabs are. Join us next week for part two of the Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth, love well. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.com dot org.